thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we take on chapter 49 of the book of Genesis. Um, This is probably the most important chapter in the entire book. And it is a book that we're working, we we have been on our way on this journey in Genesis to come to it and understand the content of it. I have 45 pages of notes. I have something that I'd like to share with you. This is a poem written by a uh, teenager to her father. I thought uh, it might be worth sharing with you. It's not very long, but I think it has an important message for fathers. Here's what she says. You, my dear father, today we proudly celebrate certain people who make families great, one of which would be you, without a doubt, yes, it's true. For who is there at the eye of the storm to calm things down into their proper form? Whose smile do we see when things get harder and is self-sacrificing, no less a martyr? And whose voice do we always hear endlessly year after year, adding song of happiness in times good and glad, but also calls out with care during times that are bad? Why, that would be you, obviously, Dad. Never forget all the things that you do are all appreciated with many a thank you, and that even though time passes by faster and farther, I love you forever and ever, dear Father. Happy Father's Day. Just remember that what you do is very important and that your kids are paying a great deal of attention to it, even if they don't always express it the way you'd hope that they would. If you can put up with your mean, and uh, I don't like you anymore because you're giving them tough love, when they'll grow up a little older, with the help of the Holy Spirit, as you live your life according to this covenant, God gives them the wisdom to see and appreciate the things you do for them. And so it is fitting that uh, we begin this chapter, chapter 49, with this little poem, because, after all, this is the testament of Jacob, the patriarch, the one who was father to twelve sons, and who had hardship all his life. Yet God 
let him know the hour of his death to prepare for it. And before he died, he called his sons together and bestowed upon them blessings and curses. So if you have chapter 49 with you, please read with me. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall befall you in days to come. Assemble and hear, O sons of Jacob, and hearken to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in pride and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Simon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. O my soul, come not into their counsel. O my spirit, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they slay men, and in their wantonness they hamstring oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his ass's coal to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong ass, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for thy salvation, O Lord. Riders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose that bears comely fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers fiercely attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him sorely. Yet his bow... Bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father, who will help you, by God Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that couches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the eternal mountains, the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. 
in the morning devouring the prey, and at, e and at, even, or at, at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Memre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field of the cave that is in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So I'm hoping tonight to go through the, um, uh, let's see, first ten sons all the way up to Joseph, and next week, so I was supposed to finish this week, unfortunately, last week I wasn't able to, I'll, I'll go one more week, and next week hopefully we'll close it by looking at the end of chapter 49 and chapter 50, which is a fairly close, uh, um, short chapter. So, so the, the first thing you need to notice is that Joseph is keen on providing his, children's with, his children with what is going to happen. It isn't really a blessing. It is more, more like a testament that he is giving them. And that testament is going to be fulfilled in the history of Israel all the way until the coming of Christ. It is from that testament moving forward that the entire biblical history is going to be structured. From there on, we will see that what is to happen afterwards is the fulfillment of what Jacob is prophesying. The other important word to make right now and to keep in mind is that after the passage of Jacob, there is no oracle of the Lord. Before then, when Abraham was alive, God spoke to him. Then Isaac came about and God spoke to Isaac, renewing the covenant. Then Jacob came about and the covenant was renewed with Jacob. And though Joseph personally has reached a high level of holiness, no oracle was given him. God never spoke to him. And after the passage of Joseph, none of the other sons, including Judah, received the oracle of the Lord. Nothing will be said for 400 years until Moses. So, if you back up a minute and you look at the whole history up until now, from Adam to Joseph in the book of Genesis, you see that the Lord himself intervened personally at important moments to reveal his will. He did it with Adam, obviously walking in the garden, and after they fell, he spoke to Adam one last time. Then when Cain slew Abel, even though Cain was a murderer, God spoke with him directly. Then Noah... God spoke to Noah, and he spoke to Abraham, he spoke to Isaac, he spoke to Jacob. Throughout the book of Genesis, God is personally involved with each and every one of them, and then nothing. We're going to pick up on that when we come back, and we look at Exodus and the book of Numbers. And there's a reason for it. But do remember that 
God has a plan. And the plan, as it is going to unfold throughout all of Scripture, was they go down to Egypt, then He brings them out. And in the process of bringing them out, He, institute, he institutes the first priesthood. The, the, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, will become the, uh, the priestly tribe. As Jacob just said, He's going to scatter them amongst all the tribes. It will be the tribe that will have no possession. And it will be temporary. The whole Mosaic system is temporary because it does not confer grace. No personal grace can come from the law of Moses. It was the most perfect law there could be, but it could not confer grace. Not because it was a bad law, simply because there was no power in it. The power was not to come from a book or from words or from the law. The power was to come from a person. And then as you see they're, they're uh, meandering through history, they're going to go to this phase where they're slowly, painfully, are going to gain control of the land that was promised them. And they will g- keep a foothold on this land for about 500 years, and then they're going to lose it. Never to be again masters of their own destiny, so to speak, until very recent times. And all along, the prophets are there to be the conscience of Israel, the mouthpiece of God, reminding them, prophesying and warning them of God's wrath, and then God taking action. All the way, preparing them for the coming of the Christ, the great and the great mystery that was revealed in the fullness of time. Yet, if you look at it again, after Christ came and after He died and rose, it would seem as if nothing's changed. We're back in the same cycle. The law was given, grace was given so we can live the law, and yet countries and nations and people went to war and went against Christ's law, and continue to do so today. So in the great canvas of history, you always have to remember that you must understand that sin will always be a mystery. It's called the mystery of iniquity. Why is it that after grace was confirmed, so much sinful activities remain in the world? At the heart of it, there is a mystery that we must contemplate in light of the glory of God. How is it that God's glory will be manifested even through all the sinfulness that we see around us? Just um, there on EWTN, there was an article written by Father Utenauer, who is the head of um, um, Human Life International, HLI. He just issued an article stating that uh, exorcists are going to get very, very busy um, in the years to come. I don't know what took him to, to say that, but that's what he said specifically. You can find it on EWTN. It's still there. Um, he's, he essentially are, is seeing an increase in diabolic activities. Uh, one of the reasons being, obviously, uh, Harry Potter. I hope you have not let your kids read the book. Uh, but if you did, you've got to have to sit down and really have a good conversation with them because it is a book that um, prepare the youth to dabble with uh, the the the, um, the occult, and uh, my daughter just told me today that apparently the author of Harry Potter is working on releasing 
the book of spells. Because all the spells that are in this book are half spells, but half true spells. They're not jokes. And she, they're opening up a theme part. Okay. And she's, she's, now she's, she's publishing the book of spells. And 400 million copies of the book have been sold. Okay? So you have to still look at all of this and always remind yourself, how is God's glory being manifested through the whole thing? That's where faith is of essence. Because reason alone cannot reveal to you the glory of God. It is faith that does. Right? And without proper meditation on God's glory... It is really hard for us to comprehend what is going on. Yet, precisely, it is the glory of God that Jacob saw, even though he was dying. So let's go through this. It is fair to say that this chapter attracted more attention than any other chapter of the patriarchal history. You look at all the chapters in the Pentateuch, if you will, the five books of Moses, and this chapter attracted more attention by the fathers than any other chapters. And for good reason. Because there you have the testament of Jacob. There have been two ways of treating this from the fathers. One, obviously, is to um, look, at it from the, um, look at it from the analogical sense where they see Christ in the fulfillments of these prophecies. And that is to be expected. However, Rufinus, one of the um, early writers, looked at it from the moral angle. And he saw in these prophecies a progression of the soul from the earlier stages to the, to the highest level of perfection. And I'll point these out to you as we go. So he saw in these prophecies that are given in the Testament of Jacob, as he went through it one by one, a progression of the human soul as the soul tries to reach the highest level of holiness. So there are two re readings given from a spiritual sense, and we're going to point to those as we go through. And obviously we're going to focus on the literal sense, just to be able to understand what the prophecies are. A, a word of warning, though, in many, many instances in this chapter, the meaning is obscured, difficult to understand, certain unique words have been used. We have very little context of the tribes themselves for us to fully understand what was meant. So our understanding of it from the literal sense is hazy. Again, we are confronted with parts of Scripture that we don't fully understand from the literal sense. Hence, it keeps reminding us that God has not, in essence, willed for us to fully and completely understand everything just by sitting down reading Scripture. There are things that are hidden from us and will be so maybe until the end of time. But there are things where archaeology, history, sociology help put the context of those passages in place. Another important point to make is that this is the first time where we see the consummation of the world, the end of the age mentioned. Right? And the reason why is that because Jacob understands, we don't know how he understands that, but he has an understanding that the world will come to an end. He has a linear, a linear perception of history. Most ancients did not have that kind of perception. 
There was not necessarily a perception that the world started and the world will come to an end. But he did. Because here in the translation that I have, where it says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall befall you in days to come. It's also in later days. The days to come are the later days, the end days. So the, the, the prophecy isn't just about them, but it really takes on universal meaning because it extends all the way to the end of, of uh, the age. And it is remarkable for an ancient uh, writer to think this way, to think linearly. You understand the linearity of time as we know it today is a distinctly Judeo-Christian concept. A good example is this Mayan calendar where people are making such a hoopla of the year 12, uh, 12, 2012, right? What most folks who are being so entranced by 2012 forget is that the Mayan calendar fundamentally was cyclical. It reset itself and starts counting again. Most uh, ancient civilizations were cyclical. The concept of a wheel or a cycle was built into them. So, for instance, a reincarnation. Those who believe in reincarnation, you die and you start again. You cycle a number of times and eventually you've, you, you're done and then you become, you, you are merged with the, the you know, supraconscience that you be, become part of it and you're no longer an individual. You become completely fused into this, right? This notion that there is one beginning and one end and it's linear and it's progressive is definitely Judeo-Christian. And the notion that it will, uh, in the end, come to something that is really good is definitely Christian. And if you understand that, you understand that it is Christianity that really is the engine of hope on this planet. Right? Hope springs from Christian hearts. Because hope is a virtue, and it is not something that we can live with and understand unless we are truly Christian. Now, this uh, Testament of Jacob is really a combination of three literary uh, genres. The deathbed blessing familiar to us from earlier patriarchal narratives, such as in chapter 27, verse 27, 28, verse 1 through 4, and 39, which is Abraham and Isaac. The farewell address found found later in the Bible, as in Joshua, chapter 23 and following, and 1 Kings, the, the first book of Kings. And the tribal poem, as in the Deuteronomy 33 in Judges chapter 5. So the actual penning, the, the way the, 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 the whole testament was written, is effectively of a later date. It may be that Jacob did not say the words exactly the way they did it, they, they, they were penned down, because the author put them into poetic form. It is not clear that jo- Jacob on his deathbed spoke poetry. But it is the understanding of what his words meant that were put into poetic form. By far, this chapter is the most difficult chapter of the book of Genesis. Because, as I said, um, some of the words are not clear to us and their context has been lost. And it would be best to call it the last words of Jacob or the testament of Jacob instead of the blessings of Jacob. Because, as you heard, some of the things he said were not blessings at all. Now, modern scholarship has added almost nothing to the great variety of medieval exegesis in its attempt to unravel the historic background of the sayings, with the only exception that the medievals treated these as prophetic, whereas the modern would be generally inclined to view them as retrojections from later historical reality.
meaning our modern exegetes today, are so imbued with a pseudoscientific approach, and I call it pseudoscientific because I tend to be a scientist, um, a mathematician, and when I read the critical analytical approach and when I read what the moderns are doing, it is not science. They don't follow proper scientific principles, but they think they do, and they're so imbued by scientific thought that the idea that somehow somebody from the past would have prophesied something and saw it right would be impossible. In fact, they do the same thing with the treatment of the the Gospel of St. Luke when Jesus speaks and prophesies of the fall of Jerusalem and points out that when you see soldiers surrounding the city, in their mind, the prophecy is so precise that Jesus could not have never spoken these words. It must have been retrojected into the text after the fact. In many of the books I use are not of Catholic origins. I have two books on the book of St. Luke that if we were to give to most Catholics to read, they'd end up being atheists. And it is written by a Jesuit priest who is uh, an, a worldwide expert in five languages, uh, Aramaic, uh, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, um, um, and uh, so at least these four and a bunch of others. And he is the expert on the book of St. Luke. And if you were to read his analysis, you'd end up atheist. I don't know what his name is. Uh, I, I have the books, and I've used them extensively in the book of St. Luke, as I went through cleaning them up from his own thoughts and, and you know, reorienting what he's talking about according to the mind of the church. So, recognize this is a difficult passage, and we're going to see how well we do through it. So, for instance, to see that this book has, this particular chapter has been constructed very precisely, throughout the, the chapter, the names Jacob and Israel each appear five times, exactly. And the equality of distribution symbolizing the dual character of the patriarchal, the patriarch and his sons, as individual personalities and as tribes. So the five is this complete number. And the fact that the name Jacob and the name Israel appears indicate that this text was written for the sons, but also for all of Israel, all the tribes. It is also fitting, I suppose, that the book of Genesis, which opened with the creative power of divine word, when God is creating the world, closes with the notion of the effective power of the inspired predictive word of the patriarch. Essentially, you can think of uh, this uh, chapter as the introduction to what is going to happen next. Throughout time, the history of Israel is laid down for us, so to speak, in very... um, in very concentrated fashion, obviously, you can't read these, these verses and deduce what is going to happen, but you do have an inkling where this is going. Obviously, two tribes dominate the entire poem. Five verses are devoted to each, together totaling 10 of the 24 lines of poetry. So, literally 40%, if not 45% of the entire thing is devoted to Judah and Joseph, right? the two main tribes, which by now, you, I'm, I'm certain... You understand the importance of these two tribes and why they are here and to what degree, what, what important role they'll play throughout the rest of uh, Israel, the, 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 the history of Israel. So, verse 1, as I said earlier, um, in days to come, in prophetic literature, the phrase becomes a technical term for the end times. So, in days to come does not mean tomorrow or next week. 
it really has a connotation of the end times. Now, the end times, keep in mind, the end times mean a couple of things, actually numerous things in Scripture. The, one, the first and most obvious meaning that most people are familiar with is the end of time. Right? That's it. The world comes to a stop. We're done. Right? But there are other, there are other uh, meanings to the word that are more applicable to us than the end of time. One, obviously, is the end of an age. So, for instance, with the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, there was an end of an age, an end of time. The time of what? The Old Covenant, the Temple. With the destruction of the Temple, the time of the Old Covenant was up. A new time began. The New Age. By the way, New Age is really... um, uh, Christian heresy. Right? We, we are the ones to speak of the new age because it is the age of Christ. That is the new age, right? That is the new age. So you have a notion of an age. Now within an age, as is the new covenant, there are also end times that happen regularly. And these indicate the end of specific periods where certain political powers are at play and they do not they do not conform to God's will so he brings about their end it is the end of their time so that in all of these all of these end of something are all governed by the covenant and the last and fourth meaning which is the closest to us is what the end of our own time, when we die. There is no difference in God's eyes between the death of an individual, the end of a country, a political power, an empire, the end of an age that spans thousands of years, and the end of the world. They're all moments where the covenant comes in and regulates history according to God's glory. As you can see here specifically, that's the end of the patriarchal time with the death of Jacob. It is also the end of Jacob. And God arranged it so that it would be glorious because Jacob knew when he was to die. One thing you ought to pray for, two things you ought to pray for, perseverance until death, you know that, right? Perseverance until death is not going to be granted you unless you pray for it. This is not automatic. The fact that you believe now is no guarantee that you will believe when you die, unless you ask for it. And one way to ask for it is by what? What? Which prayer? I've been saying this now at least three times. I'm going to have to repeat it again. Which particular prayer has embedded in it Perseverance. The, go ahead. Yes, the rosary. The rosary. Pray for us now. And what do you think we had at the hour of our death for? What for? So at the hour of our death, we would persevere. Yeah? Yeah. So perseverance is not given us unless we ask for it. And what is the other thing you want to pray for? Connote, connote it with it. Say that again? Peaceful, no, not peaceful. 
peaceful. Some people had very peaceful death, but you have to really pray for them. No. Graceful, yes, but it's actually negative. You want to pray against sudden death. Sudden death. Some people have in their mind that they want to go quickly. Right? Yeah, well, you would rather not go quickly. Okay? There are a bunch of reasons why you don't want to go quickly. The first one is you're testing God. You're somehow assuming that you will be ready. It's, so, number one, you're, you're testing God. Number two, you're being presumptuous in assuming you're going to be ready by asking for, for a sudden death. All right? That's two. Three, it's an act of pride because you think you're going to be ready. Right? Fourth, it's not an act of hope because somehow you don't believe that if you were to suffer, God will not be with you. Five, it's not an act of faith. Because you think God is, doesn't love you unless he spares you pain. Which means you've not understood why Christ died on the cross. Okay? Not a good thing. You know, it's about time you grapple with the notion that suffering, suffering with Christ, suffering with Christ, is far more precious than having a happy life without Him. Because the problem fundamentally is we're still using Christ as a... Um, a, a, a crutch, right? We just want to use Him when it pleases us so we don't suffer. So that, this does, But we have not yet entered into this loving relationship with Him that says, as long as you're with me, I'm going to be fine. As long as you're with me, no matter what happens, I'm going to be fine. Even if I don't understand, even if I'm pushed to my limits, if you're with me, I'm going to be fine. Stay with me and do with me what you want. That's the Christian attitude. Yeah? Here's your rule of thumb. If you fully understand your prayer, if your prayer is completely comprehensible to you, and you fully understand what you're saying, you're not praying. You'd be like Mr. Spock trying to say to a woman he loves her. He would have, you know, analyzed all the angles and looked at it from a statistical standpoint, what are the likely outcome of this relationship, and did the whole analysis of it, and then he would have uttered those words as if he's doing a mathematical proof, missing the point. So, likewise, you can't be... You can't be in control when you're with Christ. You can't be in control. He has to be in control. It means you have to let go. So, again, you have to pray for perseverance. Perseverance until the moment of death, which is not given unless we constantly pray for it. That's the constant teaching of the church. You will not get perseverance unless you constantly pray for it. And you want to pray against sudden death. So you have time for what? Yeah, for confession, for the last sacrament, for receiving the Holy uh, Communion before you can be on your journey. And I told you this, I, I, many, I've, I've said that many times. Again, I'll, I'll repeat it again. It's so important. You've you got to understand what happens when you die. Okay? You're going to have to really understand the process and realize what you're up to. 
Right? When we die, the body, the body, bodily function are going to start failing. Right? So you can't see with your eyes, you can't hear with your ears, you, your, 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 your senses are dimming down, and eventually there's going to be a moment where you don't hear, you don't see nothing before your soul separates. Well, guess what's going to happen right there? You think you're just dying by yourself? You think you're alone when you're dying? That's the greatest lie there could be, to think that you're alone. Who's going to be right there at the moment of your death? Satan is going to be right there. And if he can sin against you millions of of demons to get you to despair, he's going to do that right there. So if you have not been in the habit of prayer to hear the voice of the shepherd, that's why Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. How are you going to recognize the voice of the Lord? Yeah? If you haven't prayed the rosary, pray for us now and in the moment. Who's going to be there to defend you? If you've been devoted to your God and angel, who's going to be there to defend you when you need it the most? You understand? Death is not a lonely business. It's very crowded. So you've got to have to... You are a soldier of Christ. You're here to do battle. Prepare yourself. Right? And treat death for what it is. Either it's the antechamber of the marriage of the Lamb. Your soul is going to be united with that of Christ. It's a huge feast awaiting you, the most beautiful day of your life, literally, is the day you die. Or, it's the exact opposite. Yeah? So, you have to keep that in mind. So, you can see how Jacob was blessed. God told him, you're going to die. So, not only he told him he's going to die, but he gave him wisdom and prophecy to speak to Israel and fulfill his role all the way through. All the way till the end. That's how we have to be. Okay. So he speaks of Reuben first. And rereading what he says. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength. Preeminent in pride and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to my father's, to your father's bed. You, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. So he is... He's, so he calls him my might, meaning my vigor, um, because he's the first one who, who was born when he was, uh, the, he was uh, Jacob was still very young. He was exceeding, um, meaning literally excellence. Uh, he was um, the one stronger than all the other ones. He was effectively primed to be a firstborn. And then yet he was unstable as water. Unstable as water. What did he do? He went to his couch, and as you know, that whole episode where he effectively, as it was the case back then, if you wanted to become the king, you go after the women of the king to assert your authority over, over, um, um, over the kingship. And, and we know that Reuben did that. Now, key in on the words that, uh, Joseph, uh, that uh, uh, Jacob uses here, you shall not have, you, you went to, you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. Defiled it. What kind of language is that? When you say that something was defiled. It is sacred language. You defile a temple. Hmm? So what does that mean? It means you take that which is reserved for sacred use, say a chalice, right? And you take the chalice and you pour beer in it. There's nothing wrong with beer as a 
drink. But the fact that you poured beer, which is not holy, not reserved, not consecrated, into an object that is consecrated and reserved for holy use, defiles the object. Yeah? So what are we? We are the temple of the Lord, right? What does that mean? When you were baptized, what happened to you? You were consecrated. You were set aside for holy use. What does that mean? It means that your body is not yours. You do not own your body. Before you were baptized, your body was owned by the devil. And after you were baptized, Christ owns your body. You are merely the steward of that which he owns. Hence, notice the sacred use of the language. The fact that he went into someone else's couch is a defilement. Why? Because the bed is consecrated, is set apart for sacred use. Hence, what is sex? Sex is holy. Not only it is good, not only is very, very good, it is holy. It is set aside for sacred use. Sex is the prayer of the body. And its use is to do what? What is the purpose of sex? To fulfill the blessing of the covenant. Be one flesh and multiply. Those are blessings. Our problem is that we don't understand that. We cannot, based on reason alone, understand that. Why? Because we want to do it apart from Christ. We don't want to do it with Him. We're co-creators. We create with Him. But we don't want to do that. We just want to use Him to give us the two kids we want, and then we want Him out. And we don't understand that as we do that, the covenant is triggered and blessings and curses flow and command and direct our life. That's how it works. So the bed is set aside. Likewise, a church is a holy place. Its use is for sacred language. That is why when you are in a church and you use non-sacred language, language that is not consecrated for the glory of God, you are misusing the church. That's why even standing up and saying, Hi, how are you? and socializing is not appropriate. So, hence, any word spoken in a church that is not necessary is a venial sin. You're ignoring the Lord who's sitting on His throne and you're speaking in His presence of things which are not holy. If you had the president in a room sitting, would you get up and start talking loudly about your own little affair in front of him? Would you do that? Would it sound right to do it? Just to, to start, hey, how are you? And start talking about your vacation or your plans or your days or whatever else you want to talk about. Is that right? Wouldn't that be showing disrespect for any president? Isn't that showing disrespect? 
If the Pope was here, would you do that? Well, who do you have here in the church? God Almighty. And that's because, you see, the world has penetrated our minds where we think of the church as a movie theater. The show's ended, we get up, and now we start talking. So again, we have to be like Jacob, understanding the sacramentality of everything we do, especially in our own homes. Whether our language, our action, the marital bed, the relationship we have with our children, everything must be oriented towards this end, to give glory to God. So he essentially tells him, you will not, you will not have preeminence. And he didn't. In the history of Israel, the, the, the tribe of Reuben did not have preeminence. And uh, so as I said earlier, Rufina sees in this the beginning of the man of faith, who when he starts, starts as a sinner and comes close to God and asks for his forgiveness. Now we move over to Levi, we move on to Levi and uh, Simon, who are brothers, obviously, but the point is that they're brought together. Weapons of violence are their swords. So they're seen as a pair, partners and allies. And it's obviously linked to their attack on Shechem, described in chapter 34, after the rape of their sister, Dina, how they went in and killed all these people. So the tribe of Simon completely lost its importance. In the first Israelite census, the tribe numbered 59,300 people in Numbers chapter 1. For unknown reasons, its population was reduced to 22,200 by the end of the wilderness of wandering. Forty years later, it were cut in half. Neither the blessings of Moses in the Deuteronomy 33 nor the song of Deborah in the book of Judges mentions the tribe. It just completely dwindles, goes away. From Joshua chapter 19 verse 1 and 1 Chronicles 4, 24 to 43, it is clear that Simon was largely swallowed up by Judah and remained unsettled until quite late in the monarchy period. Literally dispersed. Levi, as you know, um, will also become the priestly tribe. In this case, they're descri described as a warlike tribe. And there is no future of sacerdotal, sacerdotal status, which effectively, you, know, you wonder, if somebody was retrofitting text into this, why wouldn't they retrofit a prophecy that would say that Levi would become the priest, which is the most important function of this tribe? So if somebody was writing later to retrofit text into the words of, uh, of Jacob, why not mention one of the most, one of the key elements that this tribe will play? No word is mentioned of their role as priests. So as you know, by conquest and settlement times, the Levites play only a sacral role. They do not participate in the wars. And, um, and so therefore, Jacob's must reflect a very little tradition. Yet at the same time, you can see how in, in that particular prophecy, God is shielding Levi from itself, so to speak, by removing the Levites from the role as as war, from the from roles of warriors and making them as roles of priests, God is sort of saving them from themselves. So it's a blessing in disguise for them. All right. So in verse 7, cursed be their anger. As you can see, without the covenant, you wouldn't understand how he'd be cursing his children. But with the covenant, it makes complete sense that you have blessings and curses that apply 
across the entire book of Genesis and forward. And the curse is applied to the anger, but actually refers to those who display it. And the idea is that by... What, what, how, how does the curse manifest itself? What is the particular thing that makes somebody blessed in biblical time? Two. You have a land, and it's fruitful. That's one. Two. You have a family, and you are fruitful. Those two combined together paint a full picture of blessing. That's how the ancient understood it. You're fruitful, and the land where you live, which you own, is fruitful. Those are the blessings of God. And we'll see it in Deuteronomy 26, Leviticus 28. The blessings are expressed in these terms. Rain in its time. Earth that yields more than you really need. You're blessed. Your family's blessed, etc. Okay? And if you think today about us, we still are yearning for the same blessing. Everybody would love to be able to have a way to produce their own vegetables. And everybody has kind of a dream, right? Where you live on your own land, you own the thing, your property's there, your children are secure, there's space for everybody, right? But this is not coincidental. Isn't it weird that in the age of technology, most of us do not dream that a blessing would be that I enter my house and I have a laptop in every kitchen, in every room, I mean, even the bathroom, and it's all networked, and the house is intelligent, and my fridge prepares my coffee when I need it. How come our hearts does not yearn for that stuff? Because it's not wired in us. We know it's nice, we appreciate it, but it does never penetrate our heart. There is no place for it in there. We know it's a crutch. And it's a good crutch, and we like it very much. But it does not feed our soul. But that image I just painted for you, whether you are from America, or from Europe, or from Asia, or Africa, or whatever you're from, it is an image that speaks to the human heart. Those whom you love are around you, living on the land that corresponds to what you would like to have, in peace and harmony, with the right weather and the right temperature. Right? Yeah. That's God's blessing. So if you see of the displacement of the population in this century, and all of us living in exile and going to places and feeling like foreigners and trying to find a place where we can live, that's what exactly? A curse. Yeah. And if you start thinking about it, and going back to your own history, the history of your family, what your parents did, your grandparents, those around you, you, you start to understand why. Whether it's greed, whether it's uh, lust, whether it's um, um, contraception, obviously, the, the greatest poison of them all. God's covenant is triggered. And here we are. Yeah? Yet, through it all, God's blessings continue for those whom He loves. All right. Judah, in striking contrast to the preceding, Judah is lavishly praised and blessed. 
His preeminence is to be acknowledged by his brothers. He possesses or will possess lion-like strength. His, hege- his hegemony is to be long-lasting and his territory is extraordinarily fertile. Why is that? What did Judah do to merit all of this? He repented. He wanted to sacrifice his life for his brother. Right? Yes. He really acted as a true firstborn. And because of his own actions and what he has done, he merited that the Christ would come from Judah. When he did what he did, there was no thought in his mind about what is to come. He could not see that far in the future. He could not relate or understand the consequences of his own action. Neither did Joseph, nor Simeon, nor Levi, nor Reuben. None of them understood the consequences of their own individual actions on the lives of thousands, of hundreds, of thousands of people to come. Is it any different for us? You think you live for yourself. You think you're living for you and your children, and maybe your grandchildren, and maybe your cousins and uncles and brothers and sisters, and maybe your friends and the people you know. All in all, maybe 500 people. But your actions are going to influence and affect, affect the lives of people down the generations. What you do today has an impact that you cannot begin to understand. You see, part of, part of our life as Christian is charity, right? And we think of charity as something we do to those who are around us. Yes? Seldom do we think of charity as something we do to those who will come after us. Yet in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, And by his sufferings he shall save many. There's a prophecy of Christ. Right? The suffering Christ. By his suffering he shall save many. Likewise, you're thinking right now that your own pain and your troubles and the things you're going through that nobody's paying attention to, that nobody's even know about, the difficulties of your own time, the pains that you feel in your joints, the Whatever you're going through right now, you think, you know, you might, you might not, okay, I'm doing it for my sins or the sins of those around me. But what if, what if, because of what you're doing right now? What if, because of what you're doing right now, because of this little act of love you're displaying to God by offering Him something with nothing in return, what if God in heaven would give you preeminence over your entire tribe down the generations? where countless thousands of people that come from you will be saved because of you. Because you raised children who maybe left the church and maybe went to hell on, on, based on their own actions, yet you constantly offered God, God a sacrifice of love, a sacrifice of glory, by your actions, by your pains and aches, by your sufferings, by your silent prayers. You did that on a constant basis without ever receiving any consolation because you did not see those whom you love repent or change their lives. 
What if all of this will gain you in heaven the power of intercession for all those who come from you? And because of you, their lives will be spared. Down the generations. What if it is for hundreds of thousands of years? Yeah. God's glory indeed. That's what we don't see. That's what we don't understand. That's what we can't touch. But that's what we hope for. So when we work with Jesus, we can go to him and say, just as Peter said, well, what are we going to get? What do we get in return? Peter asked that question of Jesus. And Jesus didn't say to him, well, how could you even dare ask me this question? He told him, amen, amen, I say to you, anyone who leaves brother, father, mother, sister, land, anything else on account of me will receive a hundredfold in this life and thereafter. That's a promise. Yeah? Their lives affected the lives of so many people and so does yours. Because when this was happening, there wasn't anybody sitting there writing the story and telling them, whoa, you're the most famous people in the world. They didn't know that. They were in a little room, a bunch of them huddled around this dying old man, and that was it. There were fewer than we were in that room. There's no difference. Keep that in mind. You're far more precious than you think you are. So you can see that in the prophecy of Judah, there are a number of key elements. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. This is him, himself. Now, Judah's, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? This is authority given to him, confirmed by the scepter, the royal authority. Interestingly enough, he speaks of the scepter, in Egypt, where the Pharaoh holds a scepter. Right? So this is not an image you just you know, grab from anywhere. Where would they have a scepter being, being um, um, you know, nomads? Obviously, looking at Pharaoh, holding the scepter. That's the image he has. The image of power, authority, dominion. Interestingly enough, they, there is no king amongst them. There is no kingdom. There's nothing. Yet he speaks of the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, in, temporarily, this was fulfilled in David and in Solomon. In a very temporary fashion, a very shadowy fashion. But the truth of it is, it is fulfilled with Jesus. And we have a hard time understanding this because we think Jesus fulfilled it on the cross. And when he go up, went up to heaven, this whole image of royalty, of kingship, of authority, of crown, of scepter, goes away. But it doesn't. It's, your kingdom shall be established forever, the psalm says. Forever. It's a kingdom. Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. Implying that because his kingdom is not of this world, no one can destroy it. Therefore, it is the only kingdom that can rule the world. He didn't mean to say, my kingdom is not of this world, 
So I have nothing to do with it. He meant to say, because my kingdom is not based here, it's the only permanent kingdom that can rule this world. That's what he meant. Jesus saw himself very much as a king. Because he is. Binding his foal to the vine and his ass is called to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That is a verse that no Jewish exegete can ever interpret right. They cannot. They don't understand what it means to wash your garment in wine. It's a, it's a contradiction. You don't wash your garment in wine. You usually, when you have wine on your garment, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a little tip, by the way. If you have red wine on your shirt, how do you get, how, how do you get rid of it? Very good. White wine. Pour white wine on your, on your shirt. Okay. A couple of things that are really interesting here. First, binding an ass's colt to the vine. If you bind a donkey to a vine, what happens? He pulls the whole thing. And maybe even tries to eat it. Why would you bind a donkey to a vine? You see how weird the images are? So look at the level of contradiction going on here. This is first image, right? So the first one, the royalty, makes complete sense. To whom it belongs and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now what follows applies to the him, to this mysterious figure that Jacob is seeing. Obviously, he is seeing. He has been given and granted a vision and he's communicating it in prophetic words. Binding his foal to the vine and his ass's colt to the choice vine. You do that, the colt is going to pull the thing out of the ground. Unless it's some kind of very, very strong vine that an ass can't pull out. In which case, what happens to the ass? He's pulled in. Do you think Jesus used that imagery anywhere? I am the vine. Okay. Hold on to this image for a second. And go to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, Every firstborn you'll give me. So every firstborn is mine. But with two exceptions. Your firstborn, I do not want. You know why now. You'll, you will go, you'll take it back. And the firstborn of the ass. You redeem it or you break its neck. We'll see that in Deuteronomy. Why do you think he put the ass and us in the same bucket? What is he trying to tell us? Okay, what is one word that the prophets used over and over again with Israel and Jesus used as well? You are a... Mm-hmm, People, wicked, stubborn, stiff-necked. Who's stiff-necked? Have you seen the neck of an ass, of a donkey? You got to try to break a neck of a donkey? You can't. It's extremely stiff. You understand? We are the donkey. I am the branch. You are the vine. When do you become a vine? 
when you are joined. When you become a branch, I mean, when you are joined to the vine. So it's, it's like a transmutation of these images where you take a donkey and you turn it into a vine. Right? That's what happens in the Eucharist. That's what happens with, this is what grace does with us. It turns, them, it turns us into something we don't even recognize. You understand? That's why he can bind, he can bind the colt to the vine and the vine will not break. It is the choice vine. What is that choice vine? It is the Catholic Church. So the church is to bind the cult, meaning the world, to bring the world into subjection for the purpose of the gospel, for announcing the good news so that many may be saved. And to you I give the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Yeah, There is no way that a Jewish exegete will ever be able to explain this. Only a Christian exegete can do, a Catholic one, effectively based on the church. You see that? The new covenant is hidden in the old. The old is explained in the new. He washes his garments in, in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Which garments do you think he has in mind? Any garments? No. Priestly garments. Washes his garments in wine. Jesus Christ celebrated the Passover. The Passover consists of the cedar meal. The cedar meal, I don't have time to go through it now, but in the cedar meal there are four cups of wine that you're supposed to drink. Four. Matthew tells us that after drinking a cup, no, actually, after singing some hymns, they left. Those hymns are hymns 115 through 118, called the Hallel, or the Great Hallel. Four hymns ascending to the temple. You can read them. We have them in, in the Bible. 115 through 118 are supposed to be sung in the cedar meal after the third cup, before the fourth. Which leads many Jewish exegetes to point out that whoever wrote that gospel was not a Jew or did not understand the Passover because obviously how could a rabbi abruptly, abruptly cut the most important meal. But that's what happened. After singing some hymns, they left. Do you think Jesus finished the meal? Do you think he completed it? What did he do on the cross? What did he, what did he say at the end, the very last word? And what did he do after that? He drank. He accepted it then. And then what did he say? That's it. Yeah. He washes his garments in the fruit of the wine. Now, the fruit of the vine. Obviously, there are many, many meanings around there, but essentially, it's the new wine, his blood. That's how he washes his garments with. When the, when the centurion pierces his side, blood and water flow. Right? That, again, this is something that is given to Jacob to understand what is to come. And in likewise manner, if you were to, for all of us who pray and ask God for His wisdom, we receive a, the knowledge that we need to understand our age and to know how to live in our age. Because that's the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the, 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 the one who protects us, the Advocate. 
God, the Holy Spirit, is always here to encourage us, to lift us up and help us continue on the way. That's what he does for us. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. A couple of commentary on this. The territory of Zebulon had no connection with the sea. But what we think this means is that many of the people of Zebulon actually interacted with people from Phoenicia and worked within um, shipping yards. When he says the territory of Sidon, now those of you who know a little bit of the geography of the land, you know that Sidon is north of Tyre. Well, does this mean that his border is going to be with Sidon, the city? No. Just as Joseph was used to indicate Israel, Sidon was used to indicate all of Phoenicia. So even among the tyrant, they would speak of themselves as being the sons of Sidon. Sidon is named also in scripture as the firstborn. Right? Owing to its uh, importance, predominance. Sidon was more predominant. I mean, the way it went, it was, uh, you, had, you had Biblos first, then Sidon, then Tyre, in this order. Right? That's why, essentially, he indicates that he's going to border these people with the intent that he's going to be doing commerce with them. And with that, the good and the bad will come. Issachar is a strong ass, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that the resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a slave at forced labor. Right? So, the interesting thing about that is that Issachar is older than Zebulon, but the order is reversed in their case, owing to the fact that Zebulon will grow and Issachar will actually diminish. And that's what happens in the history of, uh, of Israel. So, as an example, for instance, this word, a strong boned ass or a strong ass, the Hebrew, Hamor Garem, is unique and obscure. So, the word actually, Hamor, you would understand that, right? right? Those of you who understand a little bit of the language, Hamor is the same word that you use for ass in Aramaic or in Arabic or in many of those languages, right? But Garem, we don't know what it means. So, it's an approximation, a strong that's really an approximation. It's the best we can get to because we don't understand the context. Okay? So what they did is that they thought that the word germ, maybe close to Aramaic gram, which is bone. It's really an approximation. Sorry, to phonetically match that to something that is kind of close. It's guesswork at best. So here's a case in scripture where we're really doing guesswork. We really don't know what that means. I thought it was good to point out, because again, anyone who says, oh, I, all I need is scripture, is um, in for a couple of surprises. So, um, in Joshua 16.10 and 1 Kings 9.21, the same word appears, which is really a toiling surf. So, it looked like um, Issachar, until the overthrow of the Canaanite city-states in the time of Deborah, the judge Deborah, the tribe had been content to perform corvée labor for the local overlords in return for a quiet existence. That's what they did. They were not able to completely settle their own territory, but they decided, okay, well, we can't do any of that. We'll work for the guys who are there, and they did that for them. Dan shall, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for, the, for thy salvation, O Lord. Okay, so I'll stop with Dan, and we'll continue next week. But Dan is interesting for a number of reasons. So, first of all, 
The unique Hebrew word shephiphon is probably to be identified with the horned serasts, which buries itself in the sand. It's a kind of snake which buries itself in the sand, especially in the hollows made by camel's hoofs, and feeds on rodents and scavengers, birds, attracted by grains and particles of food left by the Bedouin along caravan routes. It has a venom-injecting spine-like scale above each eye. So it actually throws venom without biting. All right? And it kills its prey on contact, almost instantaneously. However, its poison is not powerful enough to be fatal to a camel or a horse. It will bite its heel if it crosses its path and cause the beast to rear suddenly and violently, thereby throwing its rider. So, one understanding is that it might allude to the kind of guerrilla warfare that the tribe of Dan conducted while it struggled for survival against its neighbors during the period of settlement. Um, it could also indicate that Dan lived along passage, passage of important caravan routes and it raided them. So there were raiders of caravans. However, among Christians... There was a different understanding, which I'll read to you from St. Ambrose. The simple interpretation is this. The tribe of Dan also supplied the judge in Israel. There is a very famous judge that comes from the tribe of Dan. Very famous. His name starts with an S. You may not know he was a judge, actually. Samson. Samson was a judge of Israel. He was from the tribe of Dan. He was a Danite. Samson was from the tribe, and he judged for 20 years. But the prophecy, so just you understand, when after Joshua, after they settled the, tried to settle the land, there were no kings. So what happens, you have a series of judges that, that effectively are the ones who um, maintain the law among all the tribes. And Samson was one of them. Deborah is another judge. So those are two examples I give you. Okay. But the prophecy does not refer to him, but to the Antichrist a cruel judge and savage tyrant who will come from the tribe of Dan and will judge the people. Like a serpent sitting in the way, he will try to throw down those who walk in the way of truth, for he desires to overthrow the truth. Indeed, this is to bite the horse's heel, so that the horse, injured by the infusion of poison and wounded by the serpent's tooth, lifts up his heel. Just so the betrayer Judas, when tempted by the devil, lifted up his heels upon the Lord Jesus to throw down the rider who threw himself down to lift up all people. That's St. Ambrose who is um, commenting on this passage. Remember that in the initial curse of the, of, the, um, of the serpent, the same words were used. Right? The serpent will bruise the heel. Same language. So in the book of, uh, for instance, in the book of uh, Revelation, in the Apocalypse, Dan is not mentioned at all. It completely disappears. And one of the indications is perhaps there is this notion that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And then you notice this verse 18, I wait for thy salvation, O Lord. We don't know why that prayer is inserted here. I wait for thy salvation, O Lord. However, in the context of the commentary by St. Ambrose, it might make sense. I wait for thy salvation, O Lord. So uh, Jacob understands there is salvation to come, and he understands that this is going to be somehow related to Dan, but we don't fully understand why. Right? So, uh, 
for next week, I do recommend you read this chapter a couple of times so we can actually walk through it and cover the rest of the of the of uh, Jacob's testament. What I'm going to do now is say a word of prayer for those of you who need to leave, and then we'll take some questions. Please stand. All right, questions. Um, essentially, the question is about the hour of our of, of death. You, you you know that the devil is like a lion prowling, um, searching those whom he can devour, St. Peter. So he is a devouring spirit. He wants to pull us away from God. And therefore, he is going to be always watchful to hit us at a moment of weakness. And the greatest weakness of all is the moment of death. Therefore, temptation does not mean sin. People in the state of grace are always tempted. Jesus was tempted, absolutely at the hour of death, because he has the right to exercise his freedom, and he will attack wherever he can. That's why we pray for protection. That's why he will, exactly, he, if you're going through pain and suffering, and you are weak, your will is weak, he's going to take advantage of this to temp, tempt you, to despair, to reject God, to uh, profane his name, to commit a sin. Absolutely. He will do everything he can on that moment to cause you to fall. So effectively, he sees everything we're doing right now as a preparation for that moment where he's going to hit with all his might. That's the idea that if you are praying, asking for Mary's intercession, and you're living the life of the prayer, right? That goes hand in hand. It's not just a question of you know, saying the rosary and then I just go out and do whatever I want. It's saying the rosary and trying to the best of your abilities to staying true to it. Then Our Lady will defend you. And then He can do nothing in front of her. Right? All the demons of hell combined can't do a thing in front of Our Lady. She defeated them. Pardon? Yes, it would help if you can say that. The problem is, if get, get the away Satan, prayer of authority. It does, if you can. The problem is when we're done, let me put it to you this way. Suppose you go to the doctor, to a dentist, and he's pulling your teeth, your tooth, raw. Can you think to pray? You're so overwhelmed with pain that your brain ceases to function. You understand? So, at the moment of death, you might go, be undergoing a terrible agony, and you are not in any way, shape, or form able to pray. If you have not formed friendships with people who will intercede for you, see how cruel it is that he managed to pull the communion of the saints from the Protestants and convince them they don't need them? Correct. You, what you're saying is absolutely true. If you get in the habit of these prayers, nevertheless, remember that even in the morning, when you say these prayers, you are able to express. You're able to form a thought. It is possible that at the moment of your death, you won't even be able to do that. Right? So the, uh, a chain is as strong as its weakest link. And our weakest link is the moment of death. So you prepare yourself by saying, okay, 
I'm going to call an intercession of my guardian angel. Be there to protect me. I'm going to call on Our Lady, on the saints. I will do what it takes now to prepare. I'm actually doing what Jesus said about the rich man who has money. He says, if you have money, be smart about it and use it, right, to make friends. That's what you do. You make friends. So the point is that you have to prepare for death. Not put it on autopilot and think it's just going to be A-OK. Yes? Just a second. Yes, and that's wonderful. So this is a formation that we have to keep with us so that when we die, if we are with our senses, we're able to express these things. But we have to make allowance for a situation where we're not able to. Right? Meaning, through our senses, we can't communicate. Right? But... If we are in such an agony of pain, we do not want to commit the sin of despair. We do not want to commit the sin of blasphemy. We do not want to say to the Lord, you don't love me enough. You're not here to help me. Right? All of those. So that's why we have to have a life of virtue to prepare us for that moment. We're training. We're athletes training for the Olympics. That's death. Yes? Yeah. No, it's also about the saints in heaven. The idea is that with the graces that you receive, make friends. Make friends with people around here, but also make friends with those in heaven and those in purgatory. Money is a symbol used here. It symbolizes the richness that you have, your talents, the graces, everything you you have. Put it to the service of gaining heavenly friends, which means doing God's will. Yeah? Yes. Uh, yes, the the church and Jesus are almost inseparable. Yes, because it's family. So whether you go through one or the other, you're always going through the same thing. So I can apply the vine to Jesus, because I am the vine, he said it. But he's also the one who tends the vine. He has another image where he says, I'm the one, my father, I'm the vine, and my father is the vine dresser, right? So what is, how is Jesus manifesting him, himself as divine? Through his church. Right? Because if you look at the vine and the branches, it's form one continuity. That's the body of Christ, the, 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 the church. So there is freedom in those images. Right? We, we, can, we don't necessarily have to apply them in a very rigid fashion, provided that we preserve the truth between them. Jesus is absolutely the vine, yet the way he manifests this vine on earth is through his church. Yeah? Okay. Yes? You could look at it this way. Yes, you can connect those 400 years to the dryness of the spiritual life uh, in a moral sense. Absolutely. But the fundamental thing that we have to see into it is that why is it that after Jacob died and Joseph died, remember the, the Israelites came down to Egypt because of the famine. Well, Jacob, Joseph was very clear. Seven years, the famine is gone. Well, seven years came and seven years went. And what did they do? They stayed. Right? Breaking the covenant. And then what happens? God told them, all right, you want to go to Egypt? I'll let you be in Egypt. I'll let, let's watch and see what happens. And so what it's really a, a um, manifestation of is how our own vices lead us down a path towards slavery. And it is only when we are really in 
the worst possible state that what? That God comes to us. Right? And that's what happens. It's, a, it's, a, it's really an indication of the moral decay of Israel, and we'll see that in Deuteronomy and Numbers, because even after he takes them out, you know what they do, right? The golden calf. So, so it's not so much the, the... Well, you see, the thing is, God was with them and directed them and talked to them, and then for 400 years, nothing. Right? And then when you, they come out of Egypt, you watch their behavior, and it's indicative of the state they are in. And it is in a state of holiness. So we can't apply that there. It doesn't mean that in other cases, for those who go through this sort of desert, God isn't with them. He's so present they can't see him. But here, he's, he's removed, so to speak. Yeah? That's the difference. Yes? Studying or... Well, there is a book called The Early Church Fathers in three volumes. Uh, check it out. I don't remember the exact name. I have it at home. Um, that's a very good source to use if you want. Um, there is another book uh, that is published by Tan. I would recommend this one. It's called The Doctors of the Church. It doesn't cover everyone. There's 33 doctors of the church, but, he, but the author, uh, he's a Dominican, does a wonderful, wonderful job at really portraying them and explaining their, um, the role they played. And so that's a great... In fact, it's such a good book that... Um, I plan next year to be reading this to my children at home just to get them to be familiarized with all these, uh, these saints. So the Early Church Father is an old book, old print, but it's very good. And this one, the Doctors of the Church, is one I would also recommend. Yes. Various explanation is given to this verse. You're referring to verse um, 12. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. The... Uh, uh, Jewish commentators will tell you that the indication here is as to his comeliness, his beauty, you know, how beautiful he is. Right? The fathers have um, a number of explanations around that, which I, I, you know, I don't want to go through all of those. But the whiteness of the teeth is likened to the apostles who, are, who are alone are able to grind the word of God and make it accessible to all. Because their teeth, the, the whiteness of the teeth indicates health, and hence the ability to really consume the Word of God and make it accessible to all. Fundamentally, it remains mysterious. We don't have a real good handling on handle on what that really means. Yes. Yeah, very good point. That's not the case, Absolutely not. Actually, we will cover this because when we get to the blessings of Joseph, this is what Jacob says, verse twenty-six. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the eternal mountains, the bounties of the everlasting hills. The blessings of your father are mighty. That's why parents should bless their children. Yeah. And that's why, remember, when you come to the church, how often does the priest say? Right? May the blessing of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit remain with you. Right? Remain. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Blessings are very efficacious, very powerful. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Um, so the question is, if you were at the door of death, and should you then pray and ask, and you have young children, let's say, and you're charged, should you ask God to leave you here so you can take care of them? All right, here's how you deal with this. 
First is what is your dis- what is your predisposition towards death? Forgetting everybody else for a second. Okay, uh, hold on a second. What is your disposition towards death? You don't have to answer me. Oh, hold on. Right? Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not trying to pray into your personal life. I'm just asking a question for you to think about. What is your disposition towards death? Would you rather stay here or would you rather go? That's the first question. The second one would be, if you were to stay here, what is the purpose? So, if you see it this way, Lord, you made me a mother to these children. I wish to fulfill your covenant. I'm doing this for you. First, then you have the right attitude. If it is, Lord, I want to, hear, I want to be here because I'm afraid for my kids, that's the complete wrong attitude. Because you're telling him, you don't love them as much as I do. That if you take me, that means you don't love them as much as I do. You understand? The wrong attitude. And so what is your attitude? St. Teresa of Avila would say, Lord, if you take me now, I would go this instant. But I would rather stay a thousand years here and bring souls to you. It was all about him. So it is all about him. Was it about the kids or you? That's what you have to ask yourself the question. And you ask the Holy Spirit to really show you where your heart lies. And then teach you the detachment from things of this world, including your children, which is called holy indifference. That is not, that is not the usual meaning of indifference, which is, well, I don't care. It's not carelessness. It is the proper attitude, which is full of charity, which seeks to do the will of God, for His glory and the salvation of souls. Right? And there's a really good book that you might want to look into, and it's called The Ascent of Mount Carmel by St. John of the Cross. The whole purpose of this book is the denada, the detachment, which is the precursor that is necessary for a true union with God. The Ascent of Mount Carmel by St. John of the Cross. Yes. Okay, very good question. Here's how to understand that. The ancients, the fathers of the church, called the Mass the wedding feast of the Lamb. Wedding feast of the Lamb. You're invited to a wedding. And a wedding is between Christ and your soul. So now let's transpose this question to a wedding. Here's the bride, and here's the groom. He shows up late. Hmm? And before the end of the marriage, he leaves. What do you think? Let me put it differently. He shows up right before pronouncing the vows. He's watching his clock. He had an important contract waiting for him outside. He pronounces the words, and he leaves. What do you think of that? Would you be congratulating the bride? Would you say that there are, I'm talking about the, 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 the liturgy of the wedding, right? I'm not talking about the celebration afterwards. Would you say there were more important moments for him to be there than others? Okay. See, the problem, so now it highlights the issues that we have with our misunderstanding of the Mass. We think the Mass is a show. 
we are not involved. It happens all the way up there. We've got nothing to do with it. So we are at liberty showing up before or after or picking up the moment. That's problem number one. Problem number two, we think that the Mass is something where we have essentially nothing to do. Not just say, but do. Problem number three, we think the Mass is a place where we are owed. I came here, I'm owed. Okay, so what is the Mass? The Mass is an act of piety. What is piety? Piety is a virtue by which we give God what is His due. You're at home, your mother shows up in the morning, what do you do? You are requested to acknowledge the presence of your mother by saying, good morning, mom, and be giving her a kiss. This is something you owe your parents. Okay, so once a week, we owe God the duty of prayer. We come here to fulfill our duty, which is to give glory to God. It's a duty. We're not doing something heroic. We're not being saints. Oh, wow, he goes to Mass every Sunday. It'd be like saying, oh, wow, this kid, every time he sees his mother in the morning, he says hi. You see how this whole thing has become warped? This is just a duty. That's why the church requires us to come to Mass. It doesn't require us to receive communion. This is not a duty to receive communion. It's a duty to come and give God the glory. So when we come here, we're coming with the intent of giving God the glory. Well, all right, you know what, God? I got something else to do. Got my Starbucks. I'll show up five minutes late. Okay, I'm done. Okay, I'm going to take off now. I just showed it. My, it's not already done what the church prescribes for us to do. It's not yet complete, but I did my part. I'm done, Lord. Goodbye. Have we given God the glory with that kind of attitude? The whole thing is missed. No, you're not missing anything. You're not required to receive communion. Just as if your mother serves food, you're not required to eat. If you're not hungry, you don't eat. You're not insulting her. Right? But you're still required to do the dishes if that's your chore. Right? That's not true. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This goes against the teachings of the church. To say that going to Mass and not receiving communion is meaningless is not understanding the Mass at all. Maybe what he meant is that we are not being nourished. Maybe what he meant is that you are not receiving all the nourishment you can receive, in which case he's right. But to say that the act of worship due to God is meaningless if we don't receive communion is to contradict the teachings of the Church who requires us, it's a requirement under pain of sin, you commit a mortal sin if you don't go to Mass on Sunday. Huh? To come to Mass, but the church requires us to receive communion once a year. So he's saying the church is telling us to live our life in a meaningless way. I don't think it really meant that. That's the requirement. Yes, that's the power and efficacy of communion with Christ. Even once a year will be sufficient. That's in the canon. This is the canon of the church. 
Even in catechism, you will see that that's what the requirement. Now, now, hold on. This is the minimum required. The church is not saying do the minimum. But what kind of imposition does the church put on us? In terms of responsibility. Our responsibility is to come to Sunday, to Mass every Sunday, and give God the glory. And to receive communion at least once a year. On Easter. Yeah, but that's a different. You're talking now about a viaticum, which is a sacrament on its own and is applied to those who are dying, in which case they receive... Remember, this is obligation. We're not talking about what you, what you cannot do. You are allowed to receive communion twice a day if you want. Again? Yes, you can. All right? No, she shouldn't. No more than two. See, this is the thing. We can't be doing something... Hold on, with my, I, I, I saw you. Well, we, we can't just be doing something because we feel like doing it. We must do what is required of us, and then we must do the rest according to God's will. That is, according to the will of the church. Not just the anointing. No, no, it's also communion. It's, it's confession, communion, anointing, the whole, the whole thing. It's everything you need to be able to cross that bridge safely. That's why you want to receive it. That's going back to the moment of death. If you receive that, the viaticum, you're protected because you have Christ in you. That's why you want to pray to be able to receive it. Well, not chance, the grace. It's not a question of chance. That's why you need to pray and be protected against sudden death. So even if you have an accident, time for a priest to show up. Yeah? Yeah. Hold on, just a second. Yes. Yes, so you're correct. The reason why the church only requires us to receive communion once a year is because of the fact that many are not in a state of grace. You cannot receive communion unless you have, you are in a, I mean, you can if you want, but you're piling upon yourself uh, curses upon curses. That's what uh, uh, the reception of the Eucharist does to you if you receive it in a state of, um, of sin, all right, and instead of moral sin. That's what St. Paul says, and that's why many of you, you've received the Lord, the body of the Lord unworthily, and that's why many of you are sick and many have died, right? So that's why it doesn't impose that, because you may not be in a state of grace when you come to church. But still, even if you've committed a mortal sin, you're still required to come and give God the glory. Absolutely, you receive grace. Yes, yes. So, by the way, the, this is the one thing, I may mean, have mentioned that to you before, but the sacrament of confession isn't just a case where you go and confess your sins to a man, you're not confessing your sins to a man. You're confessing the sins to the Lord behind the man. Number two, in a sacrament of confession, sacrament of confession is essentially maybe the only way to soften your heart. The graces conferred in a sacrament of confession are much greater than when I'm in my room, say, God, forgive me. When I ask honestly and truthfully for God's forgiveness, right on the moment, God will forgive me. But the graces he has set aside in the sacrament of confession don't come to me. They go beyond the forgiveness of sins. They are the tool required so that, as we say in the act of contrition, I firmly resolve, act of will, with the help of your grace grace that I just received to sin no more. What strengthens my will and make it able to stop sinning is the sacrament. You understand? So those of you those who said, I don't need to go to confession. I just kind of, and, and God, yeah, God will forgive you, but you're not receiving what you need to overcome the sin. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Unfortunately, it is efficacious, but it doesn't, it is not helpful to the penitent because unless you go and you say with your own words, right, I've committed the sin of gluttony, 
three times this week. I've committed the sin of uh, lust four times this week. What you have to do in confession is not enough to go and then... Confession is not a soap opera. You don't want to sit there and say, you know, at 11 o'clock I was with my Aunt Judy and then the phone rang and so and so happened. And, you know, I can't... <laughs> no. It's not about spilling your guts or having a psychoanalytical session with the priest. You go there and you simply say, here's the type of vice, here's the sin that I've committed. You don't have to give any details. And here's how many times. You start by saying your last confession. When was in an, in that period of time? What did you do? Gluttony, lust, uh, sins of omission. I forgot to call my parents. I forgot to pray. I did not perform my, the duty of piety. I didn't give glory to God in the morning, in the evening, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. I was, I was disrespectful. I had thoughts of vanity, of pride. Da 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 da. You just list them. How many? How often? Unless you do this, you can't. If you don't hear yourself saying all those things, you're still thinking of yourself. You're a great guy. You know what that leads. That's why it's structured the way it is. First, you speak. And what you're trying to do when you speak isn't to beat yourself up and show you're a masochist and you love pain. The idea behind it is that you show God you're honest. You're really trying your best. In response to your confession, God forgives you and then allows you to say the act of contrition. Now, guess what? Contrition is a grace from God. When you start going to confession... Most often than not, you're not contrite. You don't have contrition in your heart. You may have attrition. You may be afraid of, your, of hell, which is good. But you're not sad because of the pain you caused God. Why? Your heart is hard, hard like a rock. It takes frequent, frequent confession. If you're serious about it, weekly confession for some time for God to soften your heart. And then give you true contrition. Because with true contrition, when, he, when you receive true contrition, what happens is that the punishment due to sin, the temporal punishment, your sins are forgiven, okay, but you still have to pay for them. That's what purgatory is for. You know, the priest gives you this sort of a, a penance, say 10 Hail Marys or say a rosary, whatever, and you think, wow, that's nothing. He doesn't have to worry about it because he knows God will compensate for, whatever, for the lack of his judgment in, in purgatory. Remember, purgatory is a state for those who died in the state of venial had only venial sins in their souls. Mortal sins, you go to hell. End of story. You have to have venial sins, or you're dying in a perfect state of grace, but you have to atone for your sins. You have time to do to pay back what is owed for the, God, for the justice of God. When you have perfect contrition, especially on days of indulgence, that is taken away. You don't have to pay for that. Yes. Well, no. They, it, well, it doesn't matter whether it's public or private. They, they don't have the sacrament. You see, the sacrament is not, the sacrament is not um, me pronouncing what my sins are. Right? The sacrament, the power of the sacrament is due to two things. The matter, which is my contrition, that's what I have to bring in, my contrition. And then the form, which is a priest pronouncing the proper words of, the, uh, of, of uh, absolution. Then the sacrament operates. 
So as my son knows, we were standing in line to go to confession. He was the first one to go. And he came back right out and told me, Dad, he didn't say the right, uh, he didn't say, and I forgive you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He said, I forgive you in the name of Jesus. I told him, oops, it's invalid. There is no confession. Not even by intention. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm saying that the, the priest, uh, it's not his intention. No, intention doesn't count. It's the proper form. So all these people that went before us, thinking they went to confession, received absolutely received nothing. Right? I can't baptize somebody in the name of Jesus. If I, I say to I, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, the guy is not baptized. I can't say in the name of the Redeemer, the Savior, the, the whatever. None of that works. It's the proper form must be said. If, if I'm a Buddhist, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the words. If I hold the book and I say those words as they're supposed to be said, that person is baptized. Because the sacrament, right, has what is called the power of to operate on its own. It doesn't require human intervention. The priest may not believe in the Eucharist. He may not believe in the real presence. As long as he says the words of consecration, according to the form, as instituted by the Catholic Church, consecration takes place. Yeah, you shouldn't be baptizing them, but if you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're baptized. My point to you is that if somebody baptizes using the wrong form, they're not baptized. If I say, I baptize in the name of Jesus, this person is not baptized. You understand? So if you're not sure, I would recommend you take them back to church and make sure. Okay, well, I, I, I wouldn't do it. The church recommends against it, by the way. The church does not want us to go baptizing people around, even our own. Only in case of grave danger. Only in case of the baby, the health. The doctors are saying, we're not sure he's going to live, and you can't get the priest on time, then you go ahead and baptize them. But other than that, you don't. Uh, Yes. Yeah, so if you go to the website, corbono.com, click on listen, the first talk. There's a free talk with a prayer on that particular devotion to the blood that Jesus shed for us on the way to the cross. Listen to it, and then uh, um, maybe you'd want to consider start saying this devotion. It has, it's very efficacious, very powerful prayer. All right? Yes. No. No, 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 no. If you missed Mass, for value, you have a, a, a child that is sick, you could not go, whatever the case, then it's valid. What is not valid is for you to go on vacation somewhere and not think about Mass. That is not a valid reason. You understand? If you're on vacation somewhere, I mean, it happened to us once we were, I don't remember, is it the Big Bear? Yeah, we were there, and then we looked at the, the schedule of the Mass, and we went to that Mass at 5.30. We got there, and the church was closed. They had changed their schedule, but did not update the, the bulletin, and so we were stuck. But that was not done on purpose. We did what we could, and we... We were able to go. But uh, again, you can't just go, I'm going to go to whatever. And well, I'll see if there's mass there. That doesn't work. Yeah. Yes. About what? General absolution, as the church tells us, is only to be used in extreme cases where the lives of people are in grave danger and there is no time to confess them. One particular a poignant, uh, tragic application of this was the uh, chaplain of the uh, firefighters in New York during 9-11. He was there, and the building collapsed. And all he had to, the time to do is a general absolution for those around him. 
before he died. That is available. Uh, that is applicable. But a priest in the church before Mass on Sunday, during general, that's not applicable. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that, not at all. Uh, the fact that people show up does not necessarily imply that contrite. The reason and the fallacy in that statement stems from the fact that contrition is not something I can make. I can be, I can desire to have contrition. I can want to have contrition. It does not follow I have contrition. Because contrition is a grace given me from God. That's what I'm saying. I can go to confession many, many, many times. I only have partial contrition. It's imperfect. Because I have not, God has not raised me to such level where I can have true contrition. I don't love Him enough. You see, contrition is nothing more than saying, Lord, I love you. Most of us don't. That's the truth. Right? So, we come, we show, we continue, we ask, we beg. doesn't mean we receive it. Not enough. That's not contrition. That's just human expression of the fact that you hurt somebody. But it's not the same as saying, I am so sorry for what had happened because I love you. You understand? Contrition is really nothing more than an indication of the union of the soul with God. It's a huge deal. So all of us usually have per imperfect contrition. We are on our way. We have to seek and strive and dig and look for the treasure. And when we find it, we rejoice. Yeah? No, it's not enough to say they showed up, therefore they have it. Lord, have mercy. Yeah, you're right. So in confession, there are really two parts. There's a confession proper. You come in, bless me, Father, if I have sinned. It's been such and such a time since my last confession. I've committed the following sins. By which time, the priest is supposed to say, say your act of contrition. You say your act of contrition. Praying God that he would give you contrition. Right? And then the priest says the act of absolution and gives you penance. Now, beyond that, he may do spiritual direction. Now, in a completely different realm. Some priests are good at it. Some are not. Right? So you kind of take it with a grain of salt. It's not the primary purpose of confession to have spiritual direction. Right? So these, I would say, it's to find a good priest, a holy priest, and receive spiritual direction from him. In which case, you would also probably want a good confession with him. But that would be the advice. But you're right. You can't depend on that. You should simply thank God for the fact that you were able to go to confession. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.